Hello, Podcateers, and welcome to episode 50. We recorded this episode the day of the 24-hour event that kicked off Disneyland's Diamond Celebration, and we had a chance to do it in the comfort and luxury of Club 1901. Uh, It was such a pleasurable experience. Uh, I met Bob a couple of years ago as part of a panel that we did at one of the art walks that I was involved in organizing, and every time I speak to Bob, he's just so gracious, and he's very direct and open about his experiences, and it just makes it a pleasure to talk to him on and off the mic. The only thing that I regret is not having a TARDIS or knowing how to bend the time-space continuum so that I can have just a little more time to talk to Bob. Um, but, uh, you know, I was very fortunate that we had that time. I thank him so much. But I- I'm very excited to let you guys know that we have some future projects that will be bringing you that involve Bob. And I can't wait until we can share a little bit more about them. So stay tuned for that. Before we jump into the episode, I'd like to remind you that you can find out more about us and previous episodes over at podcateers.com. While there, you can sign up for the birthday shout-out list, check out the shirts that we have on the gear page, and if you want to drop a few cents into the Podcateers tip jar, you can do so by clicking on the Shop Now Amazon button on our homepage. This is possibly the easiest way that you can support the podcast other than just by listening, because it doesn't cost you anything if you're already shopping on Amazon. Buying through our link will tell Amazon that you want to take a little bit of that transaction, put it in our tip jar as a commission, and whether you're buying Disney books, Disney toys, Disney clothes, I don't know, toothpaste or toilet paper, it doesn't matter. Uh, A portion of that sale will go to us, again, as a slight commission. And if you take the time to do that, we sincerely appreciate it. Finally, if you want to hook up with us on the socially networks, we're at facebook.com slash podcateers, and we are at podcateers on Twitter and Instagram. Uh, that's it. I'm going to let you guys jump into the episode. Uh, to all of our new listeners that have just recently jumped on, to all of our old listeners, thank you so much for listening. And remember that we have a Podcateers first 50 achievement coming up. So if you've listened to all 50 episodes of Podcateers thus far, you've unlocked an achievement. So grab the graphic and post it on your social networks. Use the hashtag Podcateers first 50. Uh, we seriously, we appreciate all of the love and support. So thank you so much for that. So with that said, uh, I'm going to let you guys jump into the episode. We hope that you enjoy episode 50 of Podcateers with Disney legend Bob Gurr. This is our podcast. It's about three guys that love Disney, technology, art, and food. This is Podcateers. Hello, Podcateers. Uh, we have the pleasure of sitting at 1901 at Carthay Circle at California Adventure. And I have the absolute pleasure of sitting here with yeah, Bob Kerr. Let me interrupt just a second. Uh, from, uh, this is picking up this. How about, is the area sound too loud? It's actually okay. It it's is okay. Yeah, yeah. Because, uh, yeah, because this is not like a lab, but it is close. No, actually, it's, not... it's it's unidirectional on both sides, Ooh, so it's so picking it's you up picking... here and it's picking me up here. <coughs> I got it. Okay, here it's we actually go. it. It's a really good microphone. Yeah, I actually okay. love it. Yeah, so, I wanted to ask about that. Okay, sorry for the interrupt. No, 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 no. Uh, other people have asked me the same question, but it does really well with the audio. So, well, welcome to the podcast, Bob. Thank you for being Thank here. Uh, so, first off. What are your thoughts on some of the changes that are coming to the park as far as the fireworks, the Matterhorn changes, um, how you guys left it when you originally built it, and what you're seeing today? 
Well, first off, you weren't here on opening day 60 years ago, but I was. And one of the things Walt said was, Disneyland will never be finished. Okay, so that implies it's always changing. So what we see now, 60 years later, is 100% normal because this is the continuing change that's going on. Right. I, I'm actually glad that you bring that up because uh, recently the changes that came to Club 33 with adding the salon and I've had the pleasure of actually going in there, taking a few photographs, and a lot of people seem to be upset that Club 33 changed, but we actually brought up the exact same quote and the way that we feel is as long as innovation keeps happening and as long as the park keeps getting additions, it's almost like fulfilling Walt's dream. It's exactly what Walt wanted from the very beginning. Yes, you got to remember when Club 33 started, it started as a, a small private club primarily to uh, recognize some of the early sponsors. At the same time, a very good uh, business setting so uh, Walt could have uh, discussions with a lot of uh, business entities. And then, of course, uh, after his uh, passing, you know, he never really got to enjoy that. Uh, it became, over a period of time, less of a club and more of a restaurant. Uh, these are changes that sometimes are good, sometimes they're not so good. But uh, what that amounted to was people got used to a certain level of expectation and how they could use Club 33. Example. A uh, large policy change uh, last uh, July when it reopened, when it was rebuilt, they wanted to put it back to what it was uh, more originally, which guaranteed all the current members were going to be very upset. Simple things like, well, you can't just bring anybody in and then walk away or sign up for a reservation and not show up at the guest room right. or you get free parking uh, passes and all that. So they had to kind of put it back to about where it was with the club. And then uh, the menu had evolved over the years where it was a la carte of various sizes. So to put it back like a club, it's fixed price. So now there was, this is this is class. This is the way you're supposed to do stuff. Uh, and of course the price was uh, high enough that something a dinner that starts at $100 will usually startle somebody. But if you're a member and you're at the table with your guests, you get the 15 or 20% discount, which puts you back to the regular price. Right. Well, that's an improvement in a way and tries to put the club back to the original idea of a private club for people that Walt had. But you're guaranteed to upset people uh, for various reasons. And I think at some point in time there was enough objections um, to that, and they're still trying to unravel that and get everybody used to the fact that, yes, we want to honor <coughs> that Club 33 really is a club. Now, at the same time, uh, after 1901 was built, because this, this took advantage of this new building, the restaurant, uh, Carthay Circle Restaurant, and in an area that was so walled, in the late 20s, right. and if you look at the architecture of this whole area here, and particularly this room, is like perfect 1934. In other words, the colors, the textures, even the music, little simple things, like you look at this photograph behind us here, and you'll see the curtain rods, you'll see the wall sconces, you'll see the metronomes on the table, that's obviously the music department, which was in a, in a rented uh, duplex next door to the studio wow. as they were expanding. So, this room, many of the details in the room pick up that era. Right. So this that era 
lives today in this building. Well, what happened then was the Club 33 people saw that while there's a restaurant upstairs, but they could have their uh, before-dinner libations here or their after-dinner gatherings with the restaurant upstairs, but Club 33 never had a lounge, never had a gathering place, couldn't sit and have cocktails before dinner. You you had to sit and have your cocktails with dinner, and there was no place to uh, go afterwards. So the idea was, well, we'll put a lounge over there, but make it bigger, uh, slant it more towards uh, New Orleans Square. Now, it looks like an old brick warehouse. It's been fixed up very fancy with a nice piano and everything. Um, so it's a little bit more jumpy type of place. But what's perfect is for guests, uh, as well as the members, a lot of times the kids are not interested in an expensive dinner. They want to have somebody else take them and enjoy the park. And then when they come back and dinner's over, where do they go? Aha, there's a lounge. This way, all the kids can come in. Everybody can have their little after-dinner desserts, after-dinner drinks. Kids can get a little dessert. And so the family can really enjoy uh, after dinner. But at the same time, when the kids are running around the park, uh, the members and their guests can have uh, a little libation in a club. So in other words, you separate uh, the idea of a a cocktail party before you go to a very classy uh, club uh, for dinner. So that way, that's an extremely uh, good design. But they're still working out how to make everybody happy uh, with that. I think there's always going to be somebody that's not going to be happy. I think Lincoln was correct when he said that you can't make everybody happy all of the time. No, no. I know that, for example, um, there's been instances where people who have paid all that money all those years to be a member of Club 33 have uh, blatantly violated the new policy, which is really the old policy, going way back to the early policy, and, uh, and they were terminated. Well... You never terminate rich people, and you don't terminate uh, upset rich people. Um, so this is a firestorm I stay away from. I would definitely do the same. <laughs> well, let's steer you away from that firestorm, and let's talk a little bit about uh, growing up. Uh, we know you as Bob Gurr, the engineer, the designer, you know, but growing up, were you really interested in the type of stuff that you ended up doing, or were you more artistic? I have been interested from a little kid in just about everything, but the main focus was cars and airplanes and airplanes and cars. Uh, that was a, a big driver uh, from the time I was maybe three to four years old. You know, look up in the sky, it's full of airplanes, streets are full of cars of all kinds. Um, the fact that they, uh, the mechanical aspect of it, uh, I was very, very interested in. So all of the things that uh, intrigued me as a little tiny child, that enters continues to this day, and I'm 84. Uh, that, I think, was the driving um, force, if you will, uh, that put me in a position that uh, of the various things I was trained or not trained at, the various things I worked at or was interested in. The day I wound up at the Burbank studio with Walt asking me to design a little body for a little, little car, uh, I had just enough knowledge and life experiences in my head that that was not intimidating, that I could start right in. I know how to design a body for a car. I'm not trained as an engineer. Uh, Walt assumed I was. I didn't say anything. I just kept drawing. Everybody at Disney, early Imagineers, were exactly in that same boat. They were asked to do stuff that had never been done. 
Um, and they had no fear. We're just going to go learn how to do this stuff. Uh, a lot of us are self-taught. Generally speaking, people were like Walt. They're all curious. If you're curious, you're always looking at things all the time. Want to know how things work, especially the stuff you don't know anything about. So you spend a lot of time looking up stuff, looking at stuff, and you may never use that knowledge. But what if one day Walt asks you to do something? Ah, oh, I know a little bit about that yeah. because you've been a curious person. So that is a constant, uh, all I can remember in my entire life. I, I remember a story that I heard you tell once um, that, that really employs what you just said, and that was uh, when you were building the tracks for the Matterhorn, that the Matterhorn was basically this conical object that Walt just said one day, add a track to it. I just want a roller coaster. Go ahead, design it. And uh, the fact that you didn't know about slopes and that you didn't know you know, the trigonometry part of it, uh, can you tell us a little bit about that experience? Sure. Uh, Walt had come back from uh, a summer of working with the uh, third man on the mountain in, uh, in Switzerland and was very taken with the shape of the Matterhorn Mountain and the history and the drama of it. So uh, he added that to the 1959 project that we were going to do, you know, obviously Matterhorn, Submarine, and uh, Monorail. And uh, he showed me these drawings of a, a little bobsled, which obviously has ice runners on it. And he says, well, we're going to have wheels on it. We're going to have a roller coaster. And, uh, and we're going to have Aero Development build it. And Freddie Jerger has already built a scale model of it. And it has a hole in the mountain because the sky ride's going to go through there. And I want you to put a roller coaster track in there. And oh, by the way, put two tracks in there. Well, that's a packaging problem. Normally, a roller coaster is out in the open, uh, relatively simple uh, turns and plan view placement. And it's all wood, and you can see the whole darn thing, and you can watch the cars on it. Okay, these cars are going to be hidden in a mountain where you, they're not visible to the operator, so we have to have some kind of a ride control system. Uh, two tracks has got to really twist and intermingle. Uh, the two tracks have got to clear all of the major steel that's going to hold up this building, the building with the hole in it. Uh, so there's a whole bunch of constraints. And this is, oh, by the way, before computer, which meant you can't model things in 3D, and there was only a few months to do it. And I have pencil and paper and a little thing called a compass, compass pen. Uh, but to lay out this track, uh, track goes up and down, and the first thing about roller coasters is it has what's called a neutral slope. You can go down and then come back up to that slope, but you can't go any higher because the car will stop. So you visualize you have this equation that goes for, say, 1,500 feet, and it goes up and down and up and down, but it never quite gets, it can't go higher again. Okay, every time you go down and come back up, the speed will change. Every time you go around a curve, uh, you have to bank the car, and the car's uh, uh, coefficient of drag will increase and decrease. You have to calculate that as you're drawing it. About every three feet, you have to have a new equation. I needed trigonometry. But in high school, in the 7th and 10th grade, I got an F and pass in geometry 1, which meant... I was snipped off at the knees with free education in mathematics. Mm -hmm. uh, but I needed trigonometry and I needed it now. But I had a little booklet, just a little booklet of, of charts and numbers. 
And I figured out in about 15 minutes the essence of trigonometry, just enough to start using it as a tool. So you got to realize the whole idea that matter, or I have a whole bunch of constraints immediately all piled up in the thing, and literally in the, within the first day, which I had to uh, work that stuff out, teach myself uh, things I didn't know, and then start drawing the thing. Now, luckily, um, uh, I have an ability in my head to see things in dimension. Uh, it, awesome it's, ability. Yeah, to yeah, it's kind of a, a lot of people don't have that. I don't really I don't have that. They have to visualize it in flats. Nowadays, with computers, you can visualize it very easily. Anything three D, you know, modeling programs like SolidWorks, something like that. But here I am, flat desk, paper, pencil, compass, uh, and, cal- and calculations uh, to do it. So visualize this. I have to have steel holding up the building. I have to intermingle track around all this steel and intermingle two tracks, but stay out of an area where the sky ride's going to go through there later. Now, had I not been born with some kind of ability to, uh, to have a feel for things in 3D, uh, that, w- that would have been very, very hard to try to do that. But the fact that I could visualize things as I'm drawing in a plan view and drawing in a side view and doing the calculations, I could kind of keep track in my mind where all these snakes were going uh, in and around the steel. Now, the problem became as you get some of the track in there, it had to stay inside that conical mountain that, that Fred Jerger designed, and pretty soon you, you run out of space, you can't poke out of the mountain, and there's too much clash of steel, and you're stopped. So I literally was designing a track a day, making little subtle movements to move it around, and every day moving the steel pattern slightly, like 20 foot, 20 foot, or 21, 22, 22, 19 and, and redesign the steel uh, positions. Right. And one day I got down to where about three quarters of the track was done enough to be outside the, the steel columns. And what I didn't realize, the guys down here at Disneyland, every night they were designing uh, uh, wooden footings for pouring a concrete foundation. And whatever number I gave them the day before, they built the forms. And then I find out again later they would cut up and move the forms every day. And then one day I said, okay, the uh, numbers I gave you last night, uh, that fits. That, that, it will fit the track. And then they phone up in a little while and they says, don't change a thing. The forms are in and the transit mix trucks with the concrete are on their way. <laughs> Think how fast Walt got stuff done in those days. It's terrifying to think of that, and when I answer your question today, and it's like, my God, did we get away with that? Well, we got away with it. The other part of it was, because the steel was um, so interesting, because everything's going every which way, and as the track being built was arriving down here to install it, uh, some of the steel we knew about, other parts of steel, the guys would pick out a piece of steel out of the pile, make a quick calculation cut it up, put the holes in it or weld it or whatever at different angles, and then uh, keep assembling it. And then a guy would go around and make a drawing of that part. That part yeah. See, buildings, you're supposed to draw them complete, uh, what's called an erection diagram with all of the parts already made, and then get a building and safety approval before you go. 
We built the building and we were documenting it uh, after the fact, within a day or two for every part. It's backwards, but you end up with what's called wet sign uh, building and safety documents that will say the building is okay. I mean, that's backwards and it's completely nuts, but again, that's the speed with which Walt would get stuff done. And you you guys essentially had about a year to build the 22 rides that launched the park, correct? There were 17 uh, attractions 17. when the uh, when the park opened. Some of them were quite small, you know, like a uh, 20,000 leagues walkthrough, which was an old movie set. Uh, we had a bare building. What do we do? Well, put a movie set in there and charge 10 cents, you know, <laughs> something like that. Uh, other attractions, you know, we're a bigger, more involved track. You know, we built a whole railroad, which Walt had people at new railroads, so railroads are a pretty straightforward thing to build a railroad. Uh, obviously, we had little Autopia cars at the same time. We had a, quite a number of attractions. Some of them were built by uh, Aero Development, and some of those attractions were stock, basically stock rides that, that you could buy, and others were all custom built because Walt wanted the, his, own, his own designs in the park. Um, so the 17 attractions was a very interesting mix of um, different types of attractions. Like I say, from big to small. And then, of course, by the end of um, 55, Walt was looking forward to what are we going to do for 56. And, of course, you know, starting with 56, 57, we had a whole bunch more stuff. And, of course, here comes the um, uh, 1958 uh, project. You know, where we added uh, excursion cars to the railroad, you know, so we really have really good capacity. And then also in the spring of 1958, as, as I was working on the excursion train, uh, Walt had me start first on the submarine ride, and I got enough of that done so we could have the drawings done to start getting the submarine uh, engineered and built. And then that was followed by uh, the Matterhorn, and at the same time, I was working on the Mark V Autopia car and, oh, by the way, the motorboat ride. And not until October of 58, where all this stuff's well underway, Walt says, oh, we're going to do a monorail. <laughs> so, uh, middle of October of 1958, um, he launches me into the monorail project. And I'd never seen a monorail like that. I didn't know it existed. That type, you know, it sits on a beamway. I, I always thought they hung from something. So there we are, uh, already busy. Uh, throw Bobby another traction to, to work on, and all going to open on the same date uh, in 1959. Uh, Walt had no fear to ask his people to do multiple jobs. I, I don't think anybody worked on one job. I, everybody did several things at one time. How many how many jobs did you juggle? Uh, what was the the largest amount that you ever juggled at one time? Well, that would have been a 58-59 project where there was uh, five projects all at once. Wow. But it wasn't until about eight or nine years later that you started the development of the Omnimover, correct? The Omnimover didn't come along until uh, about 65. Okay. Uh, that was after we uh, did the four big projects for the New York World's Fair 50 years ago uh, in 1964-65. But the World's Fair projects, some of them started... Um, in the spring of 1961, which was quite a few years before the uh, uh, April 1964 opening. I know in the case of the uh, Ford Magic Skyway, which was a, a very complex uh, ride system, he had me start on that on July 8, 1961. 
uh, even though it was still several years away. But that, that did take a long time. That was a, because we were working the Ford Motor Company, we were working with a, a quite a radical propulsion system using passenger cars. Uh, again, a great number of constraints, a lot of stuff we really had to try out to make sure it was going to work. But, you know, we're doing small world, which is a boat ride, which is fairly simple, but that didn't start until less than a year. Before the world. Yes, I think it was slightly over six months from the time they said, okay, we'll build it until it opened. And we'd already worked on the other one. We worked on Carousel of Progress. Um, and in the same way that, that we did with the 58-59 program, again, it was uh, actually in October of uh, 63, Walt said, oh, by the way, I, we've got Lincoln at the studio, and we've been working on it for a year, and it doesn't work. I want you to look at it. I want twice as many motions and half as much weight, and get started. Well, I'm a car guy. Uh, I don't know anything about humans. I don't know how they're built. Um, but I had 90 days to figure out human motion, how they're built, uh, take a picture of an actor moving, you know, with mirrors and everything, put that on a moviola strip, start figuring out where the joints are, and, and start engineering the thing and make drawings of it. Uh, while I was still working on the Ford Motor ride, I literally had to take, out my, take time out for 90 days and then go back to the Ford job. At any time, did you ever feel overworked with all the projects that you had going on? Only in uh, about March, March of '58, uh, there was so much stuff going on there. Really quick, I got a little bit fidgety, and uh, and I, I asked for a week off. I said, "I just I'm going to take my wife and I. We're just going to go up to Carmel and do nothing for a week, and I'll be right back." Uh, but that allowed me to get in my mind the fact that this is the way Walt works. Everybody works on everything all at once, and you better find a way to do it and do it in an eight-hour day. Where a lot of people in companies, they do overtime. At no time did I ever do overtime. If you can't do something in your eight hours, you're doing it wrong. I just learned something. Yep. <laughs> so um, the, the trap of overtime, once you do it, you get used to the extra money. And then pretty soon you're chewing into your family time. Then you're chewing into your kickback beer drinking time. Oh, yeah. And that's, uh, you, you just don't even want to start. That is very true. Yeah. You fall into a trap. I know. Yeah. I've fallen into that one. Uh, you know, talking about all these projects that you were working on, I started thinking about beer and I lost my train of thought for a second. Wow. Um, Wow, I completely lost my train of thought. Well, try uh, jump on another track. Okay. Considering that you're such a car guy, uh, when you started the development of things like the Autopia car and the way that the monorail system linked together and the way that the Omnimover linked together, did that fulfill the need that you had coming, you know, from such a wanting as a child to, you know, work on cars and develop cars or airplanes or anything like that? Well, I would never call it wanting or having a need. It was this stuff is cool. It's interesting. Uh, I like to mess around with it. You know, in auto shop in high school, I, I had no fear to take my old Model A Ford, pull the engine out, totally rebuild it and put it back. I had no fear to do a clutch job on a 36 Ford 3 window. Um, it's the stuff you like to do. But I would never call it as a, as a need or a want. 
And it slowly evolved, as I mentioned earlier, that when Walt Disney called and there was mechanical stuff to do, you know, besides car styling, it was mechanical stuff. This was sort of a natural progression, the stuff I'm always interested in. But it was never a, a, a have-to-do or a need uh, or self-fulfillment or something, which everybody talks about and writes about. Uh, that must be somebody else's passion. Mine was just a regular chug along at the stuff you like. It's a good philosophy to have. I think a lot more of us should actually try to live that way. I think we get caught in the trap of life tells you to work a certain way and you think it's the norm and you forget the simple things in life of just do what you like to do. Well, yes. Example, let's say in the role of education, uh, people will be told you must have your life goal, uh, you must have your career path. To me, a career path is uh, you're sitting there with your blinders on and you can't see anything that's interesting coming out of right field or left field, and that might not be the uh, objective you, you, that might be the best for you. So as if, as when you chugle along it, you could say, yes, I have, a, I have a, a career path, yeah, sort of, but I can be deflected at any time by something that's more interesting. And so many of the interesting things I did that were a change of path was because I was open to any crazy idea coming from any direction. Um, so I never had a feeling that I had to be on a career path to do anything. Uh, I'd say also in hindsight, up until um, I was quite a few years into working with Walt Disney, it had never dawned on me that I was supposed to have some kind of a path. I just, I just went for the stuff that looked interesting. Do you think it was a trait that you began to learn from just how Walt uh, interacted with all of you in the studio and in, at Imagineering? Because from what you're describing, Walt seems to have a lot of those qualities where when, when he got interested in a subject, he would go just full steam ahead and he would tell you, hey, I like this, let's build this. I just got into this, let's build this. Is it something that you think you picked up from Walt at Imagineering? I don't, I don't think so, because I, you, you look at Walt and you look at all the other Imagineers at the time, they were typically interested in a lot of stuff, and the stuff that Walt would like to do, which he always called stuff, um, is it sounded interesting to him, and the minute he started to talk to us about it, it also sounded interesting. So it wasn't a case of sitting there waiting for an official order to proceed. It was a conversation that would get started with, you know, he'd walk up to somebody or let's say he'd come in my office and he'd say, say, Bobby, we're thinking of, and then he'd say what it was, and then he says, well, well what do you think? And that leads to, well, what do you think if? So in other words, projects which started with ideas just starting to float around a little bit, uh, and I, I have a sense sometimes, Walt pretty much had his mind made up what he was going to do, but he wasn't sure. What he could become more sure as he talked to people, but at the same time, he could talk to people about an idea, and if an idea didn't look or sound right, uh, he could tell, and somebody's reaction was, well, maybe not. Um, that way, Walt never put us on projects, hardly ever, that turned out to be a failure after you do all the work. So in other words, everything always made sense, ultimately. And that way, after two or three projects with Walt, you had no fear of whatever he was starting to talk about that we were going to work on, because his battering average was so good. 
it's uh, I think I've heard it been said before that he was really good at basically taking all of the traits of one person and just giving them projects that he knew like you said they were always going to have a perfect batting average oh no no he would look at people that were doing stuff that they're used to and have a sense of something they could do different than what he was doing Uh, and that always startled people because it turned out that Walt let's say Blaine Gibson is the animator and Walt would look at Blaine he says uh, you know we we need to do some sculpting I, I think you'd be a good sculptor and it was like right off the wall to Blaine. He said, well, I don't sculpt. Well, uh, maybe you could learn uh, more about it, but I think you'd be good at it. And it turned out Blaine is more known for uh, sculpting than he is uh, as an animator. Uh, same thing with in later years with John Hench, who's a background artist, and he starts making drawings of a tiki room, which was going to be a restaurant, was Stouffer's restaurant at that time. Uh, which never came to pass. But since it was going to be a restaurant with birds, uh, why, John Hintz said, well, Walt, I don't know anything about restaurants. And Walt says, well, it's time to start. So John went off and took a course at a local college in restaurant management. But there, there's an example of always being asked to do something you've never done before. Walt uh, would have a good sense about what people could do and it was not necessarily in their line of existing work that they do. Uh, you could look at look at almost everybody. Um, look at um, Mark Davis. He was a stellar animator, you know, in the early 30s type of art. And then one day Walt said, um, you know, I want you to come over to Wet Enterprises and I want you to uh, design uh, scenes with gags for attractions. And it startled Mark because that's not his line of work. He does classical cartooning, the classical paintings of women and girls and everything, uh, superb animator, well, why is he going to do a string of gags? Yeah. Uh, everybody. Yeah, okay. Don't worry, Bob. Yeah, uh, why don't we... Oh, it's okay. No, well, let's keep going. Uh, take, take some orders here. Okay. Yeah, okay. Yeah, all right. Um, so that... Uh, that's kind of unusual in a company because usually people are hired for whatever their resume said. Walt was never interested in your resume. And several times he would snip at people and say, uh, somebody drags something in, they're very proud. And he says, I'm not interested in what you've done. I'm more interested in what you're going to do. That would always startle people because classically the world is... Uh, you get a job by showing a good resume, or you answer a, um, uh, you know, an employment uh, request for a resume. Uh, but in the case of Walt, uh, he kind of look at you and think of what you might be good at. How how is it that you came to work for Walt Disney? How how did that opportunity even come up for you? Well, in 1954, you got to realize Disneyland was uh, construction was underway. They had to add more and more uh, what we would later call Imagineers, um, you know, like one of everything, and they had a need for somebody to design a body for a little car, you know, like a, a typical little gasoline bump car, uh, and they were trying to get a body built or designed at the Art Center College of Design down in L.A. as a student project, because Walt was out of money. Well, why don't we get the students to do it? We don't have to pay them. 
And the headmaster of the uh, school, Tink Adams, uh, told Wally, he says, well, there's no way that uh, our students are going to do anything for you and not get paid for it. So as those meetings were coming to an end, I happened to be at Art Center that day, and there was a guy who was a job placement officer who had helped put me at the Ford Motor Company uh, uh, some years earlier, walked by and said, say, Bob, do you do outside work? I was working for an industrial design company. Um, so I don't do outside work, but I said yes. See, now there's a clue. You say yes. Um, next day, phones up and says, meet Mr. Irvine at the Walt Disney Studios in about 20 minutes. Drove out there. Mr. Irvine was waiting for me. Went inside the building, looked at the idea of this Disneyland project, and they showed me a little mechanical chassis of a vehicle in the back lot and said, we want a body for that. I knew exactly what to do from the get-go. I went home and I made a couple of drawings, came back on Saturday with some drawings, and I think for only one more week I brought, brought some drawings in, and then one day uh, Walt said, well, you know, there's, there's going to be a lot, more, uh, a lot more stuff to do here, and I started joking, and he said, well, maybe I ought to quit my day job and come over, hired, hired on the spot, just like that. But every, he was hiring people right and left. And, you know, by the time the park opened, you know, we had we had probably 50, 50 Imagineers. But at the end of 54, Walt had only gathered up 18 people. 11 out of the studio, 7 from outside the outside world. And I was one of the 7 from outside. And of that 18, today there's only 3 of us still living. And the other 2 are uh, 96 and 97. So I'm a youngster. I'm 84. So I'm the one that uh, has to go do all these events, do all these interviews, and answer all these questions. Well, I appreciate that you're answering all these questions. Uh, and one of the things that I've always wanted is I've been wanting to find a copy of your book uh, because I know uh, I heard you mention one time that having a book like that is you were the first-hand person. You know, there's all these historians that try to gather all these facts and all this data and. It's their opinion. They're, they're, they're trying to gather all these thoughts, but when someone like you writes a book, you're getting the first-hand knowledge, who you worked with, all that. And you did mention about not ever putting out an e-book and not doing a second pressing, but if you have another copy of that at home that you just want to relinquish, I will tell you. No, uh, <laughs> authors don't make any money. Publishers do. So I was the publisher. Oh, I did all the work, all the logistics. I had to go out and, uh, through a consultant, find a, a, a printer, which I found one in Hong Kong. I had to do all the Library of Congress stuff. I had to, I had to create a, a business entity, uh, go to a bank and get a, a business loan. And then I had to set up an eBay account. And then I sold the book on the Internet. And I also sold them cash up front before the book was even printed. By the time the books arrived, uh, here, 5,492 pounds of books on four pallets, straight from the printer in Hong Kong. I already had 750 of them paid paid for. Uh, I told everybody there will be an issue of 1,000 red books with the gold seal in it, with the printed uh, serial number. Then there will be 1,000 blue books. Uh, in only a few months, they were all gone, all sold. When I'd go to places, they'd say, are you going to do a second edition? Are going to do an e-book? And I says, no, 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 no. 
this is a collector's book, and they would all applaud, because how many times will a company say, like Disney Editions, will do a book, beautiful book, and as a one-of-a-kind issue, and then five years later, they update it, and so the price drops to zero again. So my sense was, if you're going to buy this book, it's expensive, fifty-eight ninety-five for a book. Uh, this should be something you put in your library, you read it, and hang on to it, and its value is only going to go up because what you've got in your hands, that's it. There is no more. You'll never see it again. And, and within a, two months of the last book being available, they were going for over $200. And they still are. Yeah. I, I tried to purchase one, and I will tell you that one of the biggest laments is... You know, when we first met, we did the La Puente Art Walk, and when you did that, that Legends panel with us with Margaret Carey, Mark Silverman, everybody, uh, the Carrollwood Foundation had a couple of copies of your book there. And it was sitting there almost calling me, but I was so busy running the event that I didn't go purchase it, and when I finally had time to do it, the person in front of me in the line purchased the last copy. And I have been kicking myself (laughs) ever since. No, it's a, it was a book everybody pretty much understood. Uh, this is a first-person account from uh, before uh, there was a Disneyland. Um, it's extremely accurate because to get the truth, I have to tell it my way. Then it's exact truth, regardless of what anybody else says. And it's simple as that. It's that is that. Um, and so it's a book that people can refer to because it's full of part numbers and who did what. Because it's like a whole bunch of little 1,500-word stories of bits of projects, how things were done, how did people do that stuff. Um, so, yes, it's, it's unique in that manner that it's not a history book where you have a trained author studying all the other books and then writing yet another book about everything else that supposedly happened, and they're full of errors. So... Uh, I enjoy today when people email me every day and they're they're asking for corrections of previously printed information in other publications, and it's like there's there's what history is like. Thousands of years ago, the only history that was correct of what was said that day, as the printing press came along and newspaper writers came along a couple hundred years ago, the only accurate history is uh, the, the morning paper of the day after. After that, everything's been rewritten. Just have to bear that in mind about the, the accuracy of history. And as time goes on, particularly in the case of Disney, there are so many books that have been rewritten over and over and over so many times in which you'll have a wrong statement and it'll probably go through a dozen books and it's never corrected. But but because it's in so many books, it's now taken as gospel and it was nowhere near gospel. But that's, that's a hazard of history. Let me, let me ask you this. Uh, I want to be very respectful of your time, um, but considering that you did do so many things on paper with a pencil, how do you think Disneyland would be different today if you had the computer technology back then that we have now? Oh, if I had had uh, the computer systems I was using, you know, at the last of the time I was doing the work, oh, I, I would have gone really, really fast. But there's a caveat. If you don't have a good design sense, the best computer program in the world will not make you go any faster. In fact, it will guarantee that you start putting lines in a computer file, you're very reluctant to take them back out or modify them. You follow that? You can revise and revise and revise and use up all the time, and you might have a big mishmash. 
But the guy who puts it with paper and pencil, you don't want to erase it. Don't put the line down unless you're very, very sure of it. That's a giant difference in the way people work. And I work both ways. I, I love the computer systems I was working on because I, I could just fly, fly through it. And uh, like the ships in Las Vegas, when we were building the uh, pirate battle show for the Treasure Island Hotel, I went up to the shop where the guys were welding the ship up. There were 63 uh, welders working on it, and I overheard two guys talking, and they said, Hey, I understand there's an old guy in Tahunga with an old Macintosh. He's feeding us drawings faster than we can build this thing. And I just thought, I'm the old guy in Tonga with the Macintosh. <laughs> because I could, go, I could go that fast. But see, that, I couldn't go that fast pencil and paper, but I sure could uh, with a com- with, uh, computer program. Well, again, there, there's just so many topics that I would love to discuss with you. And if I had the opportunity, I would sit here for hours on end. Uh, but again, I want to be respectful of your time. And I just want to thank you for sitting down with us and talking. Uh, I would love to have you back on the podcast so we can continue talking about these things. Well, we can do these as, say, uh, periodic episodes, whether they're uh, six months or a year apart. I so you can, uh, you can stay tuned and uh, come with a, uh, another list of subjects, and we can uh, chew into any subjects because um, you don't have a battery that lasts as long enough as I can talk. Mine lasts about 12 hours. I can out talk talk a battery for 12 hours. <laughs> well, maybe next time we'll put it to the test. <laughs> All right. My All right. pleasure. My pleasure. Well, All, right. All right, Pocketeers. Thank you so much okay. for listening. Again, thank you, Bob Gurr. Uh, until next week, here is to beers, cheers, and Mickey ears. Have a fantastic week, everybody. Wow, I completely lost my train of thought.